The whole country's obviously soul is a little bit crushed here with what's going on. But how are things in Texas right now? What, what's the mood? Well, it's very hard. Um, you know, me for me personally, as you know, Mike, we um, we have a child who's eight years old. He's a rising third grader, a Hispanic. Looks much like uh, the kids that were impacted so devastatingly in in Uvalde this week. And so for my wife and I, this week has been just horrific. I mean, there's just no way to uh, sugarcoat that situation. And so, uh, you know, look, we're dealing with uh, it. We understand that this is the the state of where we are today, not only in Texas, but around the country. I think people are tired. Um, You know, I'm, I'm Pollyannish to believe that this is somehow the the final straw that broke the camel's back. But I do sense, uh, based on just what I'm reading about what's happening in Washington and really hearing from my former contacts in the legislature, that I think people on the Republican side of the political ledger have had enough. Um, and I, I think it's clear that action must be taken. Um, you saw the governor of Texas today, you know, go forward with some sort of a special session and a round table, whatever. Look, that's great. Good, good for us for talking about this issue. But the time for uh, naval gazing, I think, is over. And I think we're tired uh, as a people in Texas of dealing with this. And this is a real opportunity, I think, for uh, Democrats in our state to exhibit and and showcase leadership and, and seize the mantle of this moment to, to take real action. So we'll see what happens. But I think the sense in Texas is enough is enough. And we're tired of rhetoric and, uh, you know, showcasing to the gun lobby. I think having enough of our children being attacked in this violent and disgusting way has just overwhelmed all of us uh, from all uh, stripes of the political spectrum. Now, I, and this is this is really fascinating because uh, you represent a very unique voice in this space, Jason. And so let me just kind of uh, introduce you as, as, as we get going. Um, you're a former Republican legislator in Texas, um, and like uh, me and many of the the people that we um, network with and talk with, you, you've been very concerned about the direction of the Republican Party over the course of the past uh, few years, and and you have been vocal about that. You have not been afraid to say that. You've been very courageous about these the, the turn and direction of the party. Uh, even when it has cost you politically, when it has cost you personally, and when it has cost you professionally, and um, first, I want to I want to thank you for that. I mean, we've obviously developed a friendship, and we've been talking about a number of these issues uh, for 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 many years. But but even more recently, as things have gotten more more um, <sighs> dangerous, I think is probably the right the right word, not just politically, but now in terms of our safety. Um, and and be, because you were an elected official and because you talk to so many GOP legislators um, and, and did while you caucused with them in the Texas legislature, 
I'm hoping you can provide maybe a little bit of insight, uh, as you did. Um, I think it was in the Dallas Times. I know you will be on CNN shortly. Um, you, you just at this moment in, in in the in in the national discourse, you occupy this really unique space because you were courageous, because you were not afraid to lose your seat, because you saw things heading in the wrong direction, because you spoke out on gun restrictions. And I'm just hoping you can provide a little bit more unique insight as to how Republican lawmakers are, are thinking about the situation. I know that I've asked a lot, but but we really want to kind of get into your brain and and hear what your thoughts are about how 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 Texas Republicans specifically will talk about Republicans broadly. But but if you could share with us some of that insight, Jason, that'd be great. Well, uh, thank you for the question, and, and certainly it's a good one. Look, all politicians, all elected officials have a unique DNA structure that drives them to public office, be it Democrat or Republican. We as a, a individuals are that type A individual who wants to be liked, who wants to engage, who believes that they have answers for the problems that face our community. I'm no different. You know, look, I grew up in Texas. I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, and in San Antonio, Texas, among Latinos and and African-Americans and Anglos alike. Um, I wanted to serve the state of Texas because I believed in the promise of Texas and of the great American story that we all share as as people. Now, I grew up in the 80s, so I'm a, I'm a Reagan era Republican. And you know, I was molded in the fires of the Bush era Republicans, both HW and W. And so my, my political bona fides were really forged during that time when Chamber of Commerce style Republicanism uh, was not only accepted, but embraced. Look, I wanted smaller government. I wanted lower taxes. I wanted the government to stay out of the biz- business's way of creating opportunities for our families. And so I grew up uh, at a time when that was in vogue. And when I ran for political office uh, as a Latino in a very Anglo district as a Republican, I did so because I believed in the issues that at that time, Republicans embraced. And so when I knocked on the front doors of most of the people in my district, my message was simple. It's like, look, if you want safe streets, and if you want good jobs, and if you want good education for your kids, I'm your guy. If you want to fight culture wars, and if you want to get into uh, the kinds of issues that you're reading about in Washington, uh, and fight about abortion and guns and whatever else, then I'm probably not your guy. And what I found was that resonated at the time. But during the time that I served in office, and I served for three terms, I was reelected multiple times. I went through eight elections and won all of them resoundingly. Um, I won uh, in the general election by 25 points or more. Now the primaries over the course of time, it was getting tougher and tougher, but the Republican Party shifted, I don't even want to say to the right, you know, Ronald Reagan had the famous line when he became a Republican that I didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left me. What I say 
about myself is I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party kicked me out. And the reason they kicked me out is because I was no longer willing to kowtow to this strident populist, nativist, Christian nationalist vein that really energized the Republican Party base in Texas. And so, you know, when things like gun control came up, you know, and in Texas, we have something called constitutional carry. What constitutional carry means is that someone over the age of 18 without a license, without a background check, without being uh, at all qualified, can go into a store at the age of 18 and buy an AR and an, and a Kevlar vest and a high capacity magazine that's capable of killing 100 people within 120 seconds. To me, that didn't make sense. I'm a strong believer in the First Amendment. I'm, a, I'm sorry, the Second Amendment. I, I'm a carrier of myself. I've got a gun in my car, in my household, on my person. But I didn't think that it made sense to have those kinds of, uh, to provide that kind of access to that kind of high-powered weaponry to people that may not be qualified. And so I spoke out against it, thinking that this was a common sense, standard, you know, classic Republican way of addressing a situation that would affect my community. And for that, I was punished deeply. You know, in, in Texas, the, not only the NRA, but the Texas State Rifle Association both came out strongly against me. They encouraged others to run against me. And the gun lobby came out and supported uh, my opponents with advertisements and block walking and all the things you would expect. I was shocked by this. Uh, but I recognized that, you know, the party was changing. And instead of common sense approaches to issues that impact communities, what mattered in the modern era among Republican Party primary voters in Texas was 100% fealty uh, to this very unique and strident and new way of looking at things like guns and abortion and LGBT issues and all kinds of what I call culture war issues. And so uh, I was no longer in vogue um, and, and it cost me at the polls. I, you know, look, that was one of many issues where I took a more classic centrist approach uh, and was punished for it. But that was certainly uh, one of the issues that galvanized my demise uh, as a Republican elected official in Texas. So uh, a couple quick updates, and this is this is really helpful, I think, for the discussion as we jump into this. The first is, uh, listeners, if you do have questions at the lower part of uh, your, your phone there, you should be able to um, uh, jump into the queue to ask questions, and I'll see you come up as they do come up, and we'll be able to include you in the conversation here. Um, so I do want to mention that, please. We're looking to have this be as interactive as possible. That's what the call-in app is all about. Um, that's where we try to bring on guests that are as relevant to the conversation uh, as can possibly be. And I also did want to kind of give a quick heads up that in the next five minutes or so, the Tulsa Police Department um, has scheduled a press conference um, uh, to give us an update on the on the unfortunately deadly um, shooting at St. Francis Hospital. Three people to this point have been pronounced dead. Uh, another person critically injured. The shooter um, is among the dead. So um, we'll start. We'll continue to to update as uh, the Associated Press. 
um, puts out information. But in the interim, if you do have questions, go ahead and jump of Jason and myself. Go ahead and jump into the queue. But Jason, what uh, I want to—I got another quick question um, related to some of that stuff. Have you had any conversations with either sitting members in the Texas Legislature, Republicans? if not maybe former or, or, or just Republican activists that maybe have, have shown you or given you some sense that this situation was just so heinous and so beyond the pale that perhaps there is the opportunity for some sort of change um, afoot? The answer to that question is yes, uh, not only for current members of the legislature, but for past members. And I think I think what we're seeing right now in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy in Uvalde last week is uh, what I'm hopeful is a lasting understanding that this issue is not going away, that we'll continue to see this kind of violence perpetrated against our children or or any really anybody in our communities um, unless we act, unless we do something. So I, I know there is the sense, and it's a palpable sense, that something has to be done. My concern is that, as we've experienced in previous uh, mass shootings, and remember, in Texas, we've had two recently, right? We've got one in El Paso at the Walmart, and we've had one in Santa Fe at the school. These kinds of situations are not unique in Texas, and they're certainly not unique recently. We've, we've experienced high capacity um, situations like this where people have been murdered mercilessly uh, frequently in the last five years. And in each instance, there's a great uh, moment of uh, galvanizing together and the navel gazing begins and we talk a great deal about taking action. But in the end, the action usually is limited to something that's not impactful. And 100% of the time, it does not include any kind of reforms as it relates to access to high powered weaponry. So while I'm hopeful uh, that some of my former colleagues uh, decide to take action and, and do something that will will have an impact. My fear and concern is that, uh, you know, we've been uh, on this train before. We know where the destination is, and that is, you know, a destination to um, a place where there's really no action being taken. And so we know, we, that, first of all, that, that, that is, I, I, there is some room, I think, for hope and unfortunately sustaining this sort of energy to kind of keep the, the focus of this issue and these issues, um, uh, uh, you know, at top of mind. I hate even verbalizing this, but it essentially requires more and more of these episodes to keep the, the pressure on the National Rifle Association, other gun groups, um, as well as the media, to, to keep to keep pressure on these individuals to get something done. I, I do know that in the Senate, um, the U.S. Senate, Chuck Schumer has basically said that a framework for some sort of reform that he has been talking with McConnell's office seems quite possible, including stuff for background on mental illness checks and and red flag laws and 
Um, a couple of other things. N- nothing that I think is going to be, you know, groundbreaking or revolutionary, but at least, at least we're starting to see some sort of progress by recognizing that something has to be done. Um, and I, 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 I guess what I'm going to ask you, because you lived it, is tactically, what do you expect the NRA to do in response? What, what, how are they going to start treating legislators both in state le- state houses like in Texas or, or anywhere and in the U.S. Congress? You know, uh, one of the things that I remember the most during my time when I was courting the voters of my community, one of the things that I remember that mattered the most to people at the front doors was that if I could explain to them that the decisions that I would be making on their behalf in Austin would have an impact on them and their families. And if I could, um, if I could actualize that or articulate, articulate that in a meaningful way that impacted that individual family, it usually made a difference. You know, most people don't wear a political colored jersey. Most people don't identify as right or left or MAGA or AOC. Most people go to work, uh, they have children or they've got kids in college and they just want a lifestyle that is productive and healthy and they want their kids to have opportunities that they might not have had. Most people are apolitical. And so talking to those people, they are winnable. Uh, on these issues. What I'm sensing, uh, based on conversations that I've had, based on what I'm hearing from people that uh, I know that are elected, um, is that those people, you know, the great uh, middle, you know, the, the soft Republicans, the soft Democrats are ready to vote on this individual issue. You know, I know that Beto received some backlash last week for confronting the governor at a press conference in Texas immediately in the aftermath. And, of course, the Republicans would say, you know, you shouldn't politicize this issue. But I think Beto recognized that the moment was was right to engage on something that matters to people. Look, I, I couldn't give a flying fuck about most of the issues that impact, uh, you know, my general neighborhood. But if you talk about my child, my child's safety, about my child's ability to go to fourth grade next year and be safe, you can guarantee I'm going to engage on that in a way that I've never engaged before. And I think most uh, Texans are feeling that today. And I think they are feeling the impact of what happened last week in a visceral and significant way that other issues just don't uh, have the same effect. And if I were Governor Abbott, I would be very concerned about this moment. And I would also you know, caution that the lack of action in this very important moment is going to be very un- difficult to uh, to overcome in a general election. You know, Beto's not far behind uh, Abbott when it comes just 
generally to the election. As you know, I'm the chairman of the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation. Our polls show that Beto is behind, and he's got a structural disadvantage to Abbott from about 6 to 8%. And uh, I know that 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 six to eight percent is very difficult to overcome when the cake is already baked. But there are certain disruptive moments um, that can have a direct impact on a general election. And this is unquestionably uh, one of them. And so I think what Beto did, regardless of what my Hispanic uh, or my, my Republican brothers and sisters may have said, I think was impactful. And I think speaking to this moment in a powerful way uh, will have an impact on this election. This is Mike Madrid, and you're listening to Mike Drop, a podcast that allows for your questions. Um, If you happen to be interested, please just let us know. Jump into the queue right there at the bottom of your app. And uh, we're speaking today with Jason Vialba, former Republican lawmaker in the great state of Texas, which has been unfortunately the focus of the nation's attention and the nation's heartbreak with the situation of the mass shooting at an elementary school, 10 year old children, 19, I think is the death count currently um, because of, of um, the, the, the mass shootings, which seem to be a daily occurrence here in the United States. And what we're talking about again, as, as Republicans, um, and and having dealt with these situations before, having dealt with gun lobbies before, what is the prospect of of change in the Republican Party and the Republican culture? I will share with you, Jason. When I was a young political operative, I think uh, in 1992, I think it was, I, I joined the National Rifle Association. Um, I was a member for one year, and the the reason why I did not re up or ever join again was because, to me, the National Rifle Association before I joined was simply about protecting um, our Second Amendment in a reasonable, forthright manner, which, f- frankly, candidly, I, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I have not changed that position. I, I support the Second Amendment. I support the right to, uh, to, to be armed uh, in, in self-defense and to protect your home, protect your, your, your spouse, your children, your property. Um, but it was clear right away that that was that was not the agenda here. <laughs> the The agenda was not uh, towards reasonable public policy. The, Repo- the 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 policy agenda was towards this dramatic, no holds bar expansion of of the type of weaponry that was coming online. And and just a couple of years after that, in 1994, Bill Clinton, of course, uh, passes. Uh, the assault weapons ban, um, w- with the objection, frankly, of a lot of, of rural Democrats, that was actually a thing back then, and rural Democrats uh, required the imposition of a, of a sunset provision for 10 years. And that was the best that could be done at that time. Um, and, of course, that that expired in 2004, and since that time, we have seen an unbelievable explosion in the number of mass shootings, nearly every one of them committed with an AR or some type of of semi-automatic weapon with uh, very high capacity magazines, which allows um, 
and it's, it was, were primarily created as as weapons of warfare or for the hunting of human beings. These are not these are not weapons that hunters are taking out into the wild, um, you know, for hunting purposes. The, the the target of these weapons are human beings, and and so the question becomes: um, Have we just become desensitized? To, to this is this just is this just the world we're going to have to live in because as you mentioned since uvalde we've 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 been dealing this with every day i think there were just three within that past hour that happened simultaneously a california high school shooting in tulsa um another one that i i i i, I, I be escapes me but but these are happening in real time we're talking about shootings children dying innocent people dying Sick people in hospitals dying in Tulsa. Is this is this just what society is going to be like? You know, I, I, that's a great question, and, and it's always vexed me about these weapons, right? So when we talk about assault rifles, we all accept uh, who know about firearms. We do in Texas. We do in Texas that these are semi-automatic. What that means is that with each trigger pull you are able to shoot a single round. They're not fully automatic, which means that if you place your finger on the trigger, the the gun keeps firing. These are high-powered, fast-revolving weapons that are able to kill a number of people quickly. Now, let's talk about why people might want these weapons. And you mentioned that they're primarily weapons of war, which is accurate, but that hunters are target shooters might want them. I will tell you in Texas that we do have some issues relating to uh, wild hogs that might require certain individuals to have these weapons. But the question that I always come to is this. While I recognize that these weapons might be necessary in certain circumstances, and while I recognize that sports enthusiasts and shooting enthusiasts might want these, most people that I know, including myself, would not have any problem going through a standard inspection process where somebody says to me, Jason, let's let's know about your history. Let's do a background check. Let's make sure you're mentally capable of having this weapon. Let's make sure your criminal record is clean. Let's make sure you're not an alcoholic or a user of drugs. Those kinds of simple questions and simple boxes to check that take you know a couple of weeks to administer should har- should, should hinder no one uh, from being able to get these weapons if they're entitled to. Now, if I'm an 18-year-old individual who had my birthday 24 hours ago and I've exhibited online or through other ways that I am incapable of being a civilized member of society, there's probably a reason I shouldn't be able to walk into a gun store and buy a weapon that can kill 60 children in 120 seconds. That for me is the problem that I have. And so, you know, the Republican line today is, oh, they're going to come take your ARs away, or they're going to limit your ability to have these sporting rifles and we're going to take all your your second amendment rights away absolutely not i'm a strong believer and supporter of the second amendment and voted for it every time i have the opportunity but common sense 
dictates that if we're going to provide access to this kind of weaponry, then perhaps we might, as the Constitution says, well regulate those organizations and groups and individuals that might otherwise uh, be entitled to have these weapons. So it, it, it's, it's confounding to me how we've ended up in, a situ- in this place where any restriction whatsoever, any limitation whatsoever, ending the gun show loophole, allowing an 18-year-old to buy a high-powered AR, allowing someone who's got a history of, of, of violence on their criminal record to buy these weapons is absolutely un... I, I, don't, I don't even understand that. I don't understand the objection to it. When I was in the legislature, I would ask those questions and I would vote against them. And invariably, any deviation from the unfettered uh, support of absolutely uh, unlimited access to these weapons would be punished uh, severely and quickly by the NRA and the TSRA. And and that to me was just something I I never understood. Talk to us a little bit about, and you did broach on this. And again, um, I think it'd be of, of real great interest to our listeners here. What you think the impact on this is going to be in the race for governor with Abbott um, kind of standing firmer, maybe even hedging a little bit, right? By not going to the NRA conference, I guess if that's a hedge, Beto O'Rourke taking a very public uh, posture, um, continuing with that posture. And the fact that this happens in a predominantly 80% plus Latino community that has been shifting right uh, up until recent elections, what, what does all of this mean for the election for, as, a, as a practical matter? I think that most Texans today, if you were to ask them, do you believe in the Second Amendment? Do you want to have the right to keep and bear arms? There's no question that the answer to that is yes. We are culturally um, you know, imbued with this idea that having access to firearms is something that is a, an intrinsic right of a Texan. And, you know, people from other parts of the country um, may not recognize that. I mean, look, remember Texas is a uh, historically an independent nation. Uh, we have always been independent. We're, we're generally going to be comprised of people who were the outcasts of their states uh, from the, you know, the, the eastern part of the United States and then immigrants from Mexico and otherwise. And so we're comprised of people that are very independent, very unlikely to uh, uh, adhere to government uh, standards of what is as acceptable. And, and we believe in our guns. But that being said, we are also a people that are common sense. And while we might not be as uh, progressive on these kinds of issues as our friends on the East and West Coasts, there's one thing that we share with everybody in this country, and that is the love of our children and the desire for our children to be safe when they go to public schools. And I think this issue, uh, which we've seen, again, for for decades, I mean, remember, the very first mass shooting that I think was something that that captured the conscience of the nation was in Austin uh, at the UT Tower. I mean, so we've been dealing with this since the 
you know, the fifties, right? And so in, in Texas, we, we, we've accepted some level of risk about access to these firearms. But I think there is a growing weariness among the population that enough is enough. And it's, uh, again, it's one thing uh, to pay lip service to the kinds of things that we can do to quell these issues, obviously harden the soft targets, provide mental health care for those uh, who need assistance. But thirdly, you know, the third rail, if you will, uh, is, you know, we've got to tighten access to these weapons that are killing people. If we look at just the facts, just the data, who is killing people in schools? Number one, they're under the age of 21. If you look at the last five major shootings over 10 people, they're all under the age 21. Usually they're 18. Two, they've used ARs. Uh, they weren't using nine millimeters or shotguns. They're using ARs because ARs are able to cycle in a faster, quicker way so that before they are addressed and neutralized by law enforcement, they're able to do the most damage. Those are two just direct facts that I think you have to look at if you're trying to address uh, the situation. And thirdly, um, you're going to have a situation where it's, it's a male who is usually has been indoctrinated online or has some exhibited some form of civil uh, or mental instability uh, that has been acknowledged by people many times prior to the time that they engage in this behavior. So if you want to stop, you know, 18 year old kids with ARs killing people in, in schools, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, how you do that. Um, and this is something that I think our, our elected officials are beginning to recognize, certainly our voters. And as it comes back to your original question, unless Greg Abbott uh, really understands that, and unless he is able to embrace the change in will among the voters. You know, he's going to continue to play by the playbook that he's always played from, and that is do everything you can other than gun control because that'll be problematic for his base and for the NRA and the TSRA. Beto is at an advantage because he does not have to play from that same playbook, and he can and he seems to have a really good sense for where Texans are today. And I think Texans, certainly myself and my wife, who are, you know, Repub or former Republican, I'm a former Republican. She, I'm probably the same. Um, we're tired. We're tired of, of this. And we, we know that in order to make a difference and to make a change, uh, that what's going to have to happen is common sense gun reform uh, in Texas. We got a caller. I'm going to go ahead and take one if that's okay, Jason. Get some questions sure. coming in. Keith, go ahead. Just unmute the, uh, your mic there on the app, and we'll go ahead and uh, see if we can answer your question. Keith and Alusia, I think we lost Keith as a caller. Um, if mm. you want to jump, if you want to jump back in, uh, Keith or anybody for that matter, any questions that come up, um, go ahead and jump in. If not, I'm going to keep the conversation going. Um, sure. If that's okay, Jason. Absolutely. Um, so when we're talking about the, 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 the sheer brass tack politics of who it is that's likely to uh, start breaking the, the, the death grip of the NRA 
um, on these GOP lawmakers, who do you think it will be? And how do you think it's going to come about? Well, I think the way that this happens, and you mentioned this or alluded to this earlier in the conversation, unfortunately, uh, the way that you break these voters from their steadfast fealty uh, to voting for the red colored jersey in the general election is when they when they acknowledge and believe and recognize that the red colored jersey is going to continue to do the same thing that they've done historically, and that is not to do anything to address access to this high powered weaponry. And the blue team um, will do something and may take a diff- may take a different approach, you know. And, and I think. W- Look, the, the the people that wear the red jersey consistently are never going to change. I mean, the the Trump uh, MAGA types are never going to acknowledge that this is an issue, and they're going to continue to vote as they've always voted. But remember, I mean, even in Texas, you've got about twenty percent on the far right, you've got about twenty percent on the far left, and you've got about sixty percent of the people who are able to go both ways, you know, Trump Obama voters, right? Or people who just don't pay as much attention as you or I do and just want to do what's good for their families. I think those people right now are really having a moment of of reflection and realizing that if you vote for the people on the right, there will be no change. And if you if you give the other team a chance that hasn't had an opportunity uh, to participate in constructive politics in Texas for over 25 years, um, there may be a change. And I think that's the catalyst uh, that could uh, at least bring about a very close governor's race. You know, if, if Beto is 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 shrewd and his political consultants are active and they are because I know them. Uh, they'll seize on this this issue, um, and we're only what five months away from November. I mean, this is going to be an issue that impacts this race. And again, our 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 organization had it at a six point race. I, this is worth three points just from uh, the impact that it has on people's mentality, whether or not he's able to really seize upon that momentum. And get more people to overcome that, you know, is is going to be dependent upon the political climate going forward. But uh, this race is in play, in my opinion, and it's because of issues like this and what we see with the Supreme Court with the leak of the uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade, which will also have a major impact in the state. So let me let me talk about some of the the polling because as as all of uh, people who will follow me closely know this is kind of what I live and eat and breathe. Um, I want to talk nationally here, and and I'm I'm going to be speaking from Pew Research Center, which uh, most of you know I view as sort of the gold standard on this on on, on public opinion research. The April 2021 numbers: eighty five percent of Republicans of Republicans support mental health restrictions uh, prior to purchasing a gun. 70% of Republicans, 70% support background checks. Republicans, again, 
64% oppose concealed carry without a permit. Okay. Family initiated red flag laws. 70% of Republicans support that. And again, red flag laws is when you start to see signs of a, of a person, an individual, a family member, uh, in this case, a sibling, daughter, brother, husband, father, wife, mother, showing signs of uh, harm to themselves or others. 70% of Republicans say they support um, some sort of family-initiated red flag laws. Uh, dips a little bit to about 65% if it's police-initiated red flag laws. All of these issues, mental health restrictions, background checks, opposing concealed carry without a permit, flag laws, all of these, these are not small majorities. These are very wide majorities of support, 64 to 85% amongst Republicans. They're obviously much more significant with independents and with Democrats, they're through the roof. Uh, this issue... In my estimation, Jason, I want your thoughts. But, mm-hmm. but, but this issue has the capacity to control the midterm frames nationally, even in a lot of these battleground districts that were showing a lean towards Republicans on the economy and inflation issues just a few short days and or weeks ago. Do you think, do you think that this issue can be determinative in the outcome of who controls Congress in November? So the short answer is yes. You're a professional. You've been doing this for longer than, than I've been doing this. But you know one thing, and you know that most voters are not single-issue voters. Uh, if there is a single issue that can galvanize people in a way that we've never seen before, historically, it's been abortion. Uh, that's been one single issue that has driven voters to vote for their candidate one way or the other. This issue has always been secondary or third tier in the analysis. So put your, you know, your your consultant cap on, and you're advising a, a elected official or elected can, a candidate that's that's running for elected office. And, you know, identify those issues that in the aggregate are going to drive that voter to that candidate historically uh, without uh, having a galvanizing moment like Uvalde. Um, It's hard to look to this one particular issue and say that's going to be the barometer by which all voters vote, which is why. These numbers that you point to from Pew, which I think are accurate, not only for across the country, but in Texas, have never really been needle movers uh, in Texas on these issues because, well, one, the the officials never really adhered to them. But two, I I think the perception among electeds, uh, myself included when I was running for office, was that this particular issue wouldn't be dispositive. Now, I needed to check my box and make sure that everyone understood that I'm pro-Second Amendment, but it wasn't the sort that I was going to fall on. I think when you have a moment, uh, a national moment, like what occurred in Uvalde, and particularly when it is the, uh, the uh, a, a moment that is... Uh, also magnified by all of the other moments that have occurred before, 
then I think people are, are really focusing in on this issue. And when they see that the elected candidate or the candidates that are running are not in favor of these basic common sense reforms, I think there is that opportunity uh, for for people uh, like Beto and like other Democrats to peel off some of those voters that in ordinary cycles without this kind of moment uh, would not have ordinarily been able to peel them off. And that's why I think, uh, again, unfortunately and, and devastatingly, it's these kinds of national moments that I think can move the needle towards candidates that might be favorable and likely to support the kinds of common sense measures that Pew and others have shown uh, most Americans support. You're uh, listening to Mike Drop here um, with uh, Jason Vialba, the president of the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation, uh, who tests, and by tests I mean polls and researches, a wide variety of uh, Hispanic public perception on a number of different policy issues, not the least of which is gun control Jason also has uh, the distinction of being a former Republican legislator in Texas who knows both what the pressure means from other members of his own caucus and including the National Rifle Association and the Texas Riflemen's Association with the kind of heat that comes with those lobbying groups um, on these types of issues. So it's it's extremely important um, Jason, I'm going to have M, who's a regular uh, caller, uh, jump in here with a question, if that's okay. Sure. M, go ahead and unmute your uh, phone and jump in with the question. Hi again. How are hey. you all? Great to hear Hi, from Anne. you. Hi, How are you? Good to hear from you. I'm delighted. Thank you so much, Mr. Vialba. It's wonderful to hear your wisdom. I joined late because oh, I was working. But I have two questions. And yes. one is that um, when... There, uh, on politicology, uh, is it Lucy Caldwell has been very <laughs> adamant about there's races that can't be won, that get a lot of money, and it very like we all we all want to see a particular person taken down, and they're unwinnable races. Is that what Texas is too? Like, is it actually in play, or is it one that we can kind of, as, as someone who doesn't know the ins and outs, is it something that actually could happen? Or is it something that gets hyped up but is never in a million years going to happen? So Texas is very unique. Um, unquestionably, over the last uh, at least seven political cycles, uh, interims and otherwise, we've been strongly uh, to the Republican side of the ledger. Uh, we've, had, we've, had, we've not had a statewide elected official who's a Democrat since Ann Richards, uh, I think that's 26, 27 years ago. So it's been a very long time since we've been able to, to see that in Texas. I will tell you that what we're seeing, at least from our polling and from our data, is that the Democrats are slowly but surely chipping away at that institutional advantage that unquestionably exists in Texas. Beto, when he ran for Senate against uh, Ted Cruz, uh, was within two and a half points of winning. In fact, if you look at that race that night, he was winning uh, most of the night only 
when the rural numbers came in late in the evening, did you see Ted uh, pull ahead? That was a testament not only to the strength of Beto as a candidate, but also to his organization. He did a really good job of organizing uh, voters around the state. But also demographically, you're seeing some changes. Uh, fundamentally, you're seeing some changes from people who have moved into the state from California and elsewhere. Things are beginning to change. Now, does that mean that in 2022, Beto can win? Um, I'm not certain of that yet. I will tell you again, our, our polls are closer today uh, than they've been uh, in the past and closer than what we've, ex- what we've seen in the past if we study it. Uh, Beto is a very unique candidate in that he galvanizes young voters in a way that we haven't seen from other uh, Democrats who've run at the top level. And like all major states, California, Florida, Texas, otherwise, the top of the ticket will really drive what happens at the lower part of the ticket. If you look at our state house races, which are the most, uh, I think, finite areas to, to look at, you see there's quite a bit of strength uh, of Democrats throughout the state. So when you ask, Can a Democrat win in the state of Texas? I think the answer to that question is yes, but I do think it will take a significant alignment of considerable issues, this uh, issue like Uvalde being one of them, um, and then having a candidate like Beto, who is transcendent, unlike Ted Cruz, who is not well regarded even among Republicans, uh, Greg Abbott has done a pretty good job of bolstering his base. So he's not going to lose a lot of his uh, standard voters. Uh, but that great middle, uh, which uh, Mike and I were talking about early earlier, I think is winnable and certainly winnable uh, in the in the wash of what's happening nationally uh, with respect to issues like Uvalde and the Supreme Court um, leak of the uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade. I don't know my left. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. So that's really, really hopeful, and also really hard to believe. Like, um, do you remember that this was? This is going to sound silly, but there, when there were television shows, and they seemed like really stupid shows, and I was not interested in them. And this was back before we had Netflix and we had all these other options. But I always kind of felt in my heart like, okay, well, clearly this is winning the ratings. So, you know, kind of, you know, majority wins. Fine. This is what's on TV. And then it came out that the guy in charge of choosing programming was Les Moonvis, I think is his name, who was this mm. like horrific sexual assault person and just this nasty, mm. nasty piece of work. And it was just, you know, very naive, but still like he had his thumb on the scale the whole time. This was not the majority rule. This, you know, the, I had been kind of like, okay, I, I'll, we voted and this is what we came to. That's fine. In a humongously more intense way, that's how the gun thing feels like right now. Um, and so many other things where it's like, how can this tiny, tiny percentage of people be in control? Like, how is that fair? How is that democracy? And I guess just, both of you know so much more about that. Is there hope? <laughs> like there, there might be hope to get a Democrat elected. Is there hope that the NRA won't own everyone forever? Is, is that real? So a couple of things. Uh, remember, I'm a former Republican, right? So 
I, I was steeped in that culture for decades. I mean, I, I was not a recovering Democrat. When I ran for office the very first time, I'd been Republican for 25 years. I came up through the ranks as a chairman of the Republican Party in Dallas and serving on a number of boards and commissions, working for everyone from Pete Session to John Cornyn. So I'm a real deal. I'm not a phony Republican when I came up through. But as I mentioned to um, Mike, I, I, I was a Chamber of Commerce, Reagan, Bush Republican. I cared about my community. I wanted to do what was right. I was a Republican because I believed it was the best way to uh, help my community and the people that I represented to do well. So I, I have no, I have no dog in this hunt. Uh, when I left the legislature, or when I was kicked, I was kicked out um, of the legislature. Because I wasn't far right enough, you know, I really began to look closely at the issues that I supported and classically what, what mattered to me when I was in when I ran the first time. And I what I quickly found was that the modern Republican Party, certainly with Trumpism and the Tea Party, was that there was no interest in benefiting people that you know, looked like me or were in my neighborhood. It was all about either owning the libs or some sort of nativism or populism or whatever. And that wasn't really what drove me. And it, certainly when they started having an animus towards LGBT and, and gay marriage, and those are the kinds of things that I'm like, what? why are we even talking about that? So I formed the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation so that I could find uh, the answers to the really tough questions about who people supported in Texas. And, you know, as much as I give the Republicans a hard time because I used to be that, um, make no mistake, my friends on the on the Democratic side of the political ledger also have their agendas, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. the LULAC, the LULACs and, and others of the world, uh, they're good people. They're, they care about their communities, but they have a political agenda. And so some of the numbers that I saw from my friends on the left side of the political aisle were also uh, bumped a little bit to one side. There also was a thumb on that scale. Mm. So I formed the Policy Foundation because I, I, was, I was dumb. I, I wanted to know the answers uh, to these real questions. So I said, let's find the most unbiased groups in, in, the, in the state. And I went to Rice University. Let's find the smartest people in polling. And so I reached out to uh, to people at, at a number of in a different ways and talked to people like Mike Madrid and Chuck Rocha and everybody that I could get my, get, you know, would take my phone call. And we figured out the best way to, you know, understand uh, some of these issues by polling it. So I started surveying it. And my, our mission at the foundation is um, we don't care what the answers are. We, what we care about is being right. And so if I'm pissing off the right and the left, which I did very effectively when I was in a, a member of the legislature, and I continue to do so as a member of the, of the, uh, as, a, as the leader of the foundation, I know we're on the right track. And we have. I mean, we've, made, we've made everybody mad in Texas, but our numbers uh, consistently are the most accurate in Texas. And the numbers that I'm talking to you about, Beto and, and Abbott and George P. Bush and Paxton and whoever else. Are, I mean, look, our numbers were the most accurate in the most recent primary. They were the most accurate in the most recent primary runoff election. 
They were the most accurate in 2020, and they were the most accurate in 2016. So the numbers of the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation have been spot on. I mean, if you don't believe me, you know, go to, go online and take a look. I mean, I, that's me talking. Mike will tell you a little bit about what we do, and we've always been right. And the reason we've been right is because I have no agenda. I just I'm agnostic these days. And I can tell you right now, I, I think Beto can win this election if he can catch lightning in a bottle and if the stars align, he can win this race. It won't be a blowout, um, but I, unlike, say, uh, some of the races we've seen recently, I think he's got a real fighting chance. I mean, he almost beat uh, Ted Cruz. I think he's got a chance here with these issues uh, that are driving uh, the cycle. Um, and if he really is able to seize that uh, momentum, he could win this race. I so much appreciate um, your time taking your time taking the time to answer my questions and the work that you're doing. I had actually not known about your work, so I'm really thankful to this podcast for for um, giving me the opportunity to hear because I just think that's obviously the best perspective is finding good answers, not putting a thumb on the scale to get the answers that you want. Well, go Something. to uh, txhpf.org. T-X-H-P-F, T-X-H-P-F. T as in Tom, X as in X-ray, uh, hpf.org. Okay. And you'll see our report. Go to the research site section, and the research will have our reports uh, that we've done. It's very, it's a very deep dive on these issues, um, and we, we break it down in a way that no one else is doing. I think you'll find it compelling, and if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me online or otherwise. Oh, thank you so much. I don't want to take up more time, but can I ask you one really silly question? Of course. Okay, so I lived in San Diego, and I lived in Dallas, and I am very firmly on the side that gravy does not belong on burritos. How do you feel? <laughs> you you are correct. Okay. Uh, a, bu- a, a good burrito, well, as you know, burritos, uh, you know, the, you've got the fajoles and the carnitas on there, but uh, no, no, there's no sauce on that. Now, I was shocked. In Dallas, there'd be gravy on the burritos, and I was I'm... like, where am I? What is this? Well, let, let, let me tell you why. There's there's something called Tex-Mex okay. in Texas. So Tex-Mex is not a classic um, Mex-Mex. It's not classic uh, what you're used to, right? Tex-Mex is a blend of Mexican food that came up, and then the cowboys... Uh, back in the 1800s, would would sort of uh, adulterate this Mexican food by doing things like putting what they call chili con carne on there, which is basically like a gravy with meat mm-hmm. on top of it, just to make it uh, palatable. Because those tortillas on the trail would get stale. Oh. Okay. So they, they, what they would do is they would put this uh, sauce on it uh, to soften up those tortillas because they would be stale. By the time they were up in Amarillo or something. Oh, okay. Thank you that's, so that's, so much for your time. Thank you both so much. God, God, man, for sure. I would. I'm a little bit horrified by the idea that um, they are putting gravy on burritos in Texas. <laughs> but uh, with that history, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it slide. Um, are there any other questions out there? Let me also say, if you're afraid to kind of jump on and voice anything, you can use the comment section in there to kind of drive um, um, some of the questions. Uh, we'll go ahead and take those, too. I don't know if you can see that at the bottom of your app, on the bottom of your phone. You can go ahead and ask questions there. 
Um, but I will also say, you know, Jason, I have taken a lot of your time, and I know how important family time is to you. Um, I appreciate everything that you are doing and everything that you have um, offered for us, not only today, but in your work with the Texas Hispanic Foundation. Um, where can people find you on, on Twitter? Go ahead and give your Twitter handle and then also give the Texas Hispanic uh, Twitter handle uh, address as well. So a couple of things. Uh, number one, Mike Madrid, uh, you've always been such a dear friend to me, and I am blessed that I get to host you on the Latino podcast, which, as you know, Mike, we are delinquent in putting together some episodes. <laughs> we'll get caught I'll, up. I'll, I'll, well, I'll have some time to do that. But, you know, if you thought this conversation was interesting, you should definitely listen to the Latino podcast because Mike is a wealth of knowledge. And then we bring on our our crazy, what's he call himself, the redneck Mexican, uh, Chuck Rocha, <laughs> yeah. uh, to join us. And he's also has some tremendous insight. So if you need to, if you want to reach me online, you can reach me at Jason Vialba uh, on Twitter. So it's just at Jason Vialba. And my last name is spelled unusually, V is in victory, I-L-L-A-L-B is in boy, A. So Jason, V-I-L-L-A-L-B-A. Um, I'm there and, and I'm, I, I try to be insightful. I don't post too much, but, uh, as Mike will tell you that if we do post, it's because something matters to me and we do a lot of food and music and all kinds of stuff. So please reach out. And then otherwise you can reach me uh, at txhpf.org. Um, and if you wanted to, uh, email me directly info at txhpf.org and I'll always get that. So God bless you guys. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, Mike, for having me on. I'm honored uh, that you would consider me worthy of this great podcast. And Mike drops one of my top listens, so I'm I'm glad to be on today. Thanks, Jason, and good luck on CNN. I know that a lot of people are going to be asking you for opinion uh, on what's going on, not just in Texas, but as a former GOP legislator who has felt the wrath of the NRA and the gun lobby because you were trying to do the right thing. So thank you for always standing on principle. And however we can be of support, obviously reach out and let us know. You got it, man. Thank All right, you so man. much we'll, for your time today. Thanks, guys. And we'll talk soon. Everybody else, thank you so much for joining Mike Drop. Appreciate uh, your jumping in on this episode. Hope you found it helpful. Reach out to me, of course, to address other topics. We're going to have some other great guests coming up. I'm trying to keep them as timely as possible so that we can get to the issues of the day and to provide you some better understanding of what is actually driving the electorate, especially as we get closer to the midterms. So with that, uh, always Wednesdays at 5 p.m., we'll uh, tackle another episode of Timely Issues on Mic Drop. And until then, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody.